Our scripture reading this morning is from the Old Testament. I would say if you want to turn your Bibles, but if you want to pull up your phone, you know, however you do that, if you just want to listen along, it's in 2 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 14. 2 Kings 19, starting in verse 14, Hezekiah's prayer. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of the Sennacherib, which has he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Well, good morning, everybody. Do you remember being in a situation that seemed totally unwinnable? Or just a situation that you really didn't know what to do? And there's kind of two versions of this situation. There's the one where you don't know what to do because you feel like you're in a holding pattern. Like, you don't really know. If you knew what to do, you would do it, but you don't know what to do, so you're doing nothing. And you're just waiting for God. And then in the Bible, there's another sort of situation where people don't know what to do, and it's when they're in the midst of a crisis. And when you're in the midst of a crisis, sometimes you don't know what to do because you don't seem to have any good options. And this is the kind of story we're going to talk about this morning. And what you'll see through this sermon and through this text is actually both of those situations are the same. In every situation where you don't know what to do, this story of Hezekiah lays out some things that we can do, some things that we can trust, some battles that we can fight. Now, I want to I introduce a couple of the characters in this story. This is, as Marcy mentioned, this is in the Old Testament, in the book of 2 Kings. It's in the decline and fall of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And this is not a really great time in the history of Israel. So we actually have a really good king at this time, one of the few good kings, but the nation is in decline. In fact, shortly after this, the nation is going to fall. So first up, we have Hezekiah, and he is a king in the line of David. He's actually in the line of the tribe of Judah, and he is the most like David of the kings we've seen so far in the history of Israel and Judah. In fact, he is one of the rare good kings, and if you're in a Bible reading plan, you'll notice that as you get a new king, it almost always gives an evaluation at the beginning of their story. So-and-so was a good king. You don't see that very often. Most of the time you see so-and-so was a bad king. And not because they were militarily bad or geopolitically bad or they weren't a good leader. They were a bad king because they didn't walk in the ways of the Lord. Now Hezekiah, in chapter 18, is a really good king. And it says, in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, it's going to give us some time frame, uh, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. 
And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. Just from that intro, we know that something good is going to happen with Hezekiah, because otherwise he wouldn't get that kind of recommendation at the beginning of this story. So his name means God strengthens. And in the Old Testament, one of the things you see a lot is people would name their kids things that they hoped they would live up to. God strengthens. We hope that this young baby will live in such a way that he will show the world that God is his strength. And that's exactly what Hezekiah does in this story. He shows that when the strength of the world fails, when the strength of the empire fails, when the strength of the king fails, the strength of God never fails. Second character is the prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah has his own book in the Old Testament. It's one of the big prophetic books in the middle of your Old Testament. And he lives overlapped with four kings. One of them is Hezekiah. And there's a story of Hezekiah in Isaiah and the story of Isaiah in the book of 2 Kings. And he's going to enter in and do what prophets always do, which is speak the word of God into the midst of whatever circumstances they find. This is what prophets in the Old Testament often do. They lie completely dormant, until there's a big problem and a big need, and then God sends his messenger to come and speak his word into that circumstance. Isaiah is the greatest of the literary prophets, and he lives through some of the worst times in Israel, and he speaks God's word in a really pivotal moment in this story. Now, things are not going well in in Israel and Judah. As I said, the Assyrian Empire is conquering all the towns surrounding Israel. Jerusalem. They are going to conquer the northern kingdom. They're coming down. They're actually worried about the Egyptian empire, which is south and west of Israel. And so what they did was they make this big swath. They come around, they cut off the Egyptians, and then they head north to take the city of Jerusalem. And the king at this time is named Sennacherib. And Sennacherib is really a piece of work. We know a lot about Sennacherib in history, just outside of the Bible, because Sennacherib was his own PR person. And if you go to the British Museum, actually there's one in the British Museum, one in Israel, and one in Chicago, they have these prisms that are called prisms of Sennacherib. And they found them in Nineveh in the middle of the 19th century. And this was before they even knew how to read these prisms. They're six-sided stone carvings, and they have Akkadian cuneiforms. And they found these, and they couldn't even read what they said at this point, but they're like, "These these are definitely significant. And as they began to decipher what's on these prisms, they realized this was trash talk from the 8th century B.C. And it's from the court of Sennacherib. And so what you did in those days is when you conquered somebody, you wrote your own tabloids about it. And that's what these were. They would stand up on the outside of the palace so that when you came, you could stop and read about what Sennacherib had done to all kinds of other people like you, lest you get any ideas before you come into his throne room. And in this, in this prism of Sennacherib, he writes about coming and conquering the land of Israel. So we don't just know this from 2 Kings. We know this from this prism that he comes up and he is in the middle of taking over several other empires. And he talks about all these kings that he subdues. And he gets to Israel and he says, As for Hezekiah, who did not submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong cities, as well as many small cities and neighborhoods which are without number. This is so characteristic of the Assyrians. You you can't even count all the cities that we conquered. 46 big cities I conquered by leveling them with battering rams and rolling up siege engines. And then he says this. When he comes to Jerusalem, he says, And as for Hezekiah, the terrifying splendor of my majesty overcame him. 
and he did not know what to do. I mean, this guy's got ego for days. The terrifying splendor of my presence overcame him, and he did not know what to do. He says, I made Hezekiah a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. And we don't hear on the prism of Sennacherib how the story ends. We know that they didn't conquer Jerusalem, but we only get the way the story ends in 2 Kings. And you'll see why in a minute. It doesn't fit with their PR to talk about what happens at Jerusalem. But anyway, so we've got Sennacherib, who is probably the most powerful man in the world, and he does have this amazing splendor of his majesty that goes before him, and he is besieging Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel and Judah. And what he does is he sends a delegation to Jerusalem, and that's where we get what I think is one of the most fascinating characters in the Bible. And we don't know his name, we just know his title. And his title is the Rabshakeh. Now, this means a great cupbearer, basically. He's part of the king's official entourage. In fact, most people think he is his prime delegate or his ambassador to carry out the king's will with these foreign countries. And so if you look in chapter 18, we see that this delegation rolls up to the walls of Jerusalem And Israel sends out their delegation. But this guy, the Rabshakeh, decides that he doesn't want to speak to the delegation. He wants to speak to all the people on the walls who are watching what's happening. Now, here's another thing that was so shrewd about the Assyrians. This Rabshakeh that they sent speaks Hebrew. He's able to communicate with Jewish people in their own language. And he wants them to know what's going to happen to them if they don't bow to the will of the Assyrian king. So he starts yelling up at the ramparts, and the delegation of the Israelites say, why don't you speak in a language that just we can understand? And he says, no, I want them to know exactly what happens if they trust the word of Hezekiah over the word of the king of Assyria. Now, there's an ancient Jewish legend that this Rabshakeh is Isaiah's rebellious son. There's no truth in this, but doesn't that thicken plot a little bit. You can see why they added that detail in there. There's no reason to believe that's true, but it just heightens the fact that this is a life or death situation for Israel. So with these characters, the stage is set for the battle, and there isn't actually a military battle in this story. That's one of the most amazing things about this. The the Assyrians come, they lay siege to Jerusalem, they bring in this giant army of people, and there's no military battle in this story. But there are three other battles in this story. And the first one is there is a battle of words. There's a battle of words. And the first thing that you've got to know when you don't know what to do is you have to decide who you're going to listen to. What voices are you going to listen to? Because that's going to determine what happens, what you do, what the outcome is. Who are you going to listen to? So in chapter 18, the Rabshakeh rolls up and Hezekiah sends his delegation out. And in verse 19, he says, The Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. Now notice a couple of things. First of all, he completely disrespects Hezekiah. He doesn't call him King Hezekiah. He doesn't use any of his royal titles. He has them on a first name basis. You tell Hezekiah that the king of Assyria says this. This is a battle of words because it's a, and every situation like this comes down to this very same thing. Thus says the king of Assyria, 
or thus says the Lord. That's the choice. And in this story, you're going to see the Rob Shaka say, this is what the most powerful person in the world says. And later you're going to see Isaiah say, but this is what God says. This is what God says. And so Hezekiah has a choice. He can either listen to the word of man, the most powerful man in the world, or he can listen to the word of God. In one of the early commentaries on this passage, a Jewish commentator says, in a succession of arguments using terror, ridicule, promises, slanted information, logical proof of the futility of resistance, the Rob Shaka tries to break the defender's will to exist. If you read this speech, we don't have time to read it all today because it's, it's very long, but if you read this speech, it is a marvel of rhetoric. I mean, this guy, there's a reason he has this job. He comes and he gives the most persuasive case you can make for bowing to an earthly king. Bow to the king of Assyria and everything's going to go well for you. And this is oftentimes what happens in crises is there is an easy way out. If you will just bow, if you will just get slightly off track from what God has for you, things will be so much easier. In fact, he rolls out all the stops. He disrespects Hezekiah. He intimidates them. He urges them to get on the right side of history. He says, are your beliefs really any that, any different than all these other kingdoms? One of the most persuasive things he says is, so you guys are trusting in God. We get that. But what about the gods of all these other people? None of the gods of these other kingdoms have delivered their people. What makes you think your God is any different? What makes you think your God is any different? He urges them to be rational and pragmatic. He says, you know what we'll do? We'll even give you guys 2,000 horses if you can even find the soldiers to put on them just to make it a little fairer in the battle. I mean, let's look at the numbers game here. You guys don't stand a chance. He presents himself as a student of religion. This is my favorite part of his speech. Is he goes into this religious dialogue about comparative religions. He says, those, those gods, they didn't do anything. We conquered them. And so the only conclusion that I can reach, the Rob Shaka says, is maybe we're the ones who are doing God's will. How do you know that what God told you and what God told us aren't different? What if we're the, really the people doing God's will and you're not? But finally, at the end, he makes a false step. In verse 25 of chapter 18, he says, Moreover, it's without the Lord that, is it without the Lord that I've come to this place? The Lord said to me, go up to this land and destroy it. Now he's put God's word on the line. And God is going to speak. In verse 28, the Rob Shaka stands up and calls out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. Listen to how many times he says that. Thus says the king of Assyria. Make your peace with me and come out. Then each of you will eat of his own vine and his own fig tree. Each of you will drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you away to the land. Hezekiah's faced with a choice. Who are you going to listen to? The word of the king or the word of God? And this is right at the moment when Isaiah comes into the story. You know, Isaiah has kind of a love-hate relationship with the kings of Judah. On the one hand, he is always speaking God's word. And on the other hand, it's almost never what they want to hear. So he comes in, he comes into the royal court, and he almost always delivers bad news. Because almost always, the king is doing something that God has not approved of. And he says, if you don't repent, God is going to send armies to conquer your kingdom. Your kingdom will be taken from you 
and given to somebody else. That's almost always his message. And so you can almost feel the eye roll of Hezekiah when Isaiah comes in. He's like, this is it. This is what he's been prophesying about. This is the moment. The kingdom is going under. And Isaiah meets him with a little bit different message. In chapter 19, verse 6, Isaiah says to the messengers, say to your master, and get this phrase, thus says the Lord. When you have the word of God, it doesn't matter what the king of Assyria says. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. It doesn't matter what your inclination is. It doesn't matter what your gut instinct is. When you know that God has been clear, that's the only voice that matters. He says, the Lord says, do not be afraid because of the words you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. That's interesting. Behold, I will put a spirit in him that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So when you don't know what to do, the first thing you have to do is listen for God's voice. You have to listen for God's voice. It really doesn't matter what all the other voices are saying until you know what God has said. And part of the Christian life is learning what God has said, studying the Bible, not just so that we can all be intellectuals and so that we can all be theologians. We study the Bible because we need to know on a daily basis what God has promised to do in our life. And the more you study your Bible, the more you realize the kinds of things that God has promised and the kinds of things he hasn't promised. I think, I've told you this before, the greatest source of disappointment in the Christian life is expecting God to do things that he never promised. And the only way to know what he's promised is by studying his word. You've got to know what he says. And so Hezekiah has a prophet come and speak to him, and we have prophets speaking out of this book all the time. And that doesn't mean there aren't other voices, but until you get this voice, you can't sort through any of the other things that people are saying. When Laura and I first got married and we were combining our stuff, which was pretty easy, mostly her stuff, I was able to bring a couple of things, and that's just because she has better taste, okay? So I was able to bring a couple of things, and one of the things I brought was our little Amazon Alexa. Do you guys have these or like a Google Home? And one of the things about those that Laura got so frustrated with is she would talk to that thing and it wouldn't listen to her. It would never do what she said. And she was so frustrated, she would say something, it would do nothing. And then I would say something, and it would do it. Play music or whatever. And it's because when you set those things up, you do a voice test. And you have to talk to it, and it learns your voice. This is why, at least in theory, they don't listen to you all the time, which I don't know if that's actually true, but they only perk their ears up when you say, hey, Alexa, and it's your voice. And then they know that you're talking to it. So until it learned Laura's voice, I was the only one it could, it could listen to because it knew my voice. And my voice sounds very different than Laura's voice. And so it was a matter of retraining Alexa to listen to her voice, which sounded really different, instead of just my voice. And this is such a perfect example of what takes place in the Christian life. You actually have grown up and been calibrated to listen to other voices, all of our life, before we become Christians, we are trained to listen to other voices. Voices of the world, our internal voice, voices of other people that we may not have seen for years, but their words stick in our head. Voices of promises that we've made to ourselves, things that we've told ourselves, things that other people have said. You have been accustomed and you have been calibrated to listen to other voices. That's your default setting. And part of the Christian life is learning and become accustomed to listening for God's voice. And the goal of our life is to get to the point where we are like Alexa and we only listen to the voices we've been attuned to by the Holy Spirit. 
We listen to God's voice. We listen to his word. We listen to believers. We listen to godly wisdom. But that's not your default setting. What we have to do is learn the voice of God. Discern what he's saying. Learn godly wisdom. And so what Hezekiah does is he makes a choice to listen to the words of God. Now, the second battle is a battle of promises. It's not just a battle of voices. It's a battle of promises. And if you notice in what we talked about from this Rob Shaka's speeches, he's making a lot of promises. If you will surrender to the king of Assyria, life will be good for you. If you will just cede over and side with us, then we will provide for you. If you will just lay down your arms, we will give you what you really want. And these promises are really tempting. And it would be foolish to read through this and say, these promises wouldn't even be appealing at all. These are exactly what they want, but they're coming from the wrong source. And this is what temptation is always like. A lot of the time when you don't know what to do, one of the things that you're battling is temptation. It's always the times when you feel unsteady, when you feel like you don't know, when you feel tired, when you're angry, when you're hungry. It's all, these moments are the ones that temptation always seems the strongest. And temptation at its root is a promise that it usually can't deliver fully. Now this is how sin works in every area of our life. Sin promises something that can only partly deliver. If you'll do this, you'll be happy. Maybe for a little bit, but not for eternity. Maybe sin for you is less an overt promise and more just drifting into your comfort zone or doing what you've always done or giving in to what seems popular and what seems easy and what seems like other people are doing. But what sin always does is it sets up a promise of God and a promise of the enemy or a promise of our flesh. This is what happened in the garden. I mean, think about this. What the Rob Shaka comes and says is, did God really say? Did God really say? that he would deliver you? Did God really say that you shouldn't worship any foreign gods? Did God really say that you can't just enter into a partnership with us? This is what the serpent says to Eve. He doesn't just contradict it. He says, did God really say that? Did he, say, did he really say that you would die? And what he does is he plants a seed of doubt. And so Eve had a choice. Which promise are you going to trust? Which promise are you going to trust? Because the serpent says, no, you won't really die. So are you going to believe that promise, or are you going to believe what God said? This is how Christ's temptation was as well. He's out in the wilderness, and he's hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days, and he's by himself, and he's as vulnerable as a person could get to temptation, and then Satan appears to tempt him. And Satan's temptations to us kind of seem, because it's Jesus, we're like, man, that wouldn't even be tempting at all. But think about this. You're Jesus. You're out in the wilderness for 40 days. You're just about to start your ministry, and you know exactly what's going to happen at the end. You're going to spend your time with these guys. You're going to pour into the crowds. You're going to do miracles. You're going to feed them. And at the end, everybody is going to turn on you. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, you're going to be brought to trial. You're going to be lied about. You're not going to defend yourself. You're going to be put on a Roman cross. You're going to be humiliated, stripped down, crucified, tortured, and you're going to die at the end of your life. And in the midst of that, Satan comes in and says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Isn't that what you're really after? Aren't you here to start a kingdom, the kingdom of God? I'll tell you what, I'll give you the kingdom if you just say one little word in support of me. That's the promise. You can have what you're here to have, and you can do it the easy way, or you can do it God's way. And that's 
Eve's temptation, that's Christ's temptation, that's your temptation. Think about what Abraham did when he was tempted. So God promises him that he's going to have a son, that he and Sarah are going to have a son. And time goes on, and no son. And time goes on, no son. In fact, their bodies are not even capable of having kids at this point. And he's like, maybe God has a different, slightly other plan. And so he takes Hagar and has Ishmael. And you remember how that turns out. Not great. God's like, I thought I told you I was gonna, you were going to have a son with Sarah. He's like, yeah, but we kind of had a workaround. And it causes a lot of problems in their family after that. Because in temptation, it's always, do you want to take the promise of God or do you want to take the promise of somebody else? Now, Hezekiah has two promises. Do you want to do what the king of Assyria says or do you want to do what God says? And we actually already know what Hezekiah is going to do because we get a hint at the beginning of our passage. And this is just helpful in reading your Bible. Turn back to 18 verse 4. One of the first things we find out about Hezekiah is that he removed the high places. These are altars to foreign gods. They're also altars to God, but in the wrong place. So he removes the high places. He breaks the pillars down, cuts up the Asherah poles. These are foreign gods. And he broke to pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. Now, this is an obscure story, but maybe you remember in the book of Numbers, the people of Israel are out, and they get a plague, and these snakes, these flaming serpents, are biting them. And do you remember what God does? He gives them this snake, and they put it up on a pole, which we now use for hospitals and medical centers. And if you look to the pole with the snake on it, you would be healed. And what happened was, this is, this is just so typical of the way that we are in our hearts. What they do is, after that time, they take the bronze serpent down, and they start to worship it. They don't worship God because of it. They worship it, saying, well, it healed in the past, so let's worship it. And so, you know, so many hundreds of years later, they've still got this thing around, and they're offering sacrifices to it because at one point it was an instrument of God's work, and now they've exchanged God for the instrument, and they're worshiping that. And Hezekiah's like, we got to stop doing this. So he destroys it. And you're like, why didn't somebody do this earlier? I mean, but he destroys it, and this is a hint as to what kind of person Hezekiah is. This is a rule of thumb. If you're ever reading your Bible and you see somebody kill a snake, that is always a good sign. Okay, in the Garden of Eden, a snake tempts Eve. What's the prophecy? At some point, there's going to be seed from Eve who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that is Christ, ultimately. But every time you see a serpent crusher in the Bible, you should think, this is a person like the true Adam. This is a person like David. This is a person like Jesus who's going to trust God's word and not man's word. In fact, there's a principle for this called Chekhov's gun in literature. And Anton Chekhov was a novelist, and his principle was, if there's a gun in scene one, it better be fired in scene two. So if you're reading something and you see a gun in the beginning, you should expect that that is going to be fired later in the play, or else why is it there? And that's how reading the Bible is. Every detail is important. If there's a snake crusher in the beginning, expect him to stand up for the things of God later in the story. That's just the way it works. He is the kind of person who says no to temptation and yes to God. And that's exactly what he does in this story. When all the odds are against him, he hears from God and he decides God has promised it and we are going to bank everything on it. We're not going to make a treaty. We're not going to hedge. We're not going to negotiate. We're not going to yell back and forth about troop numbers. We are going to trust that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. 
And that's what it means to follow God. This is what faith really means. In Hebrews, it tells us that faith is believing God is who he says he is. It's the substance of things that we hope for, the assurance of things we don't see. It's believing that God is who he says he is, and he will do the things he's going to do. And the first thing we ever do, in fact, to become a Christian, you put your trust in him. What you're doing is you're trusting a specific promise of God that anybody who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life, sins forgiven, with him forever. The first thing you do, putting your trust in him, is to say, I'm going to trust in his promises over the world's promises. That maybe I can fix myself up, maybe I'm not that bad, maybe actually if I just go through these steps, I can earn God's favor. There's all these rival promises, and this is the only one that will make you a Christian. Do you believe that he sent his son to die for you, to pay for your sins, to do what you can never do for yourself, and you can be reunited with him. Do you trust that promise, or do you trust another promise? That's what it means to be a Christian. And to live your life from that promise is, I will trust God's word, I will trust his promises over any other promises. This is the connection between the Old Testament saints and the New Testament. Is We typically think, okay, Old Testament, they had the law, New Testament, we have Jesus, so we have totally different situations here. But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, The reason that Abraham was justified is because he believed the promises of God. He believed that God would do what he said he was going to do, and it was counted to him as righteousness. For all of history, this is the one thing. Will you trust God, or will you trust somebody else? Will you trust in what he said, or what other people are going to say? Will you trust in his son, or will you trust in some makeshift salvation plan of your own? This is what it means to be a believer, And so Hezekiah models this kind of belief by saying, God said he'll deliver us, we believe it. Now the last battle is a battle of prayer. So you've got a battle of voices. You've got to figure out who to listen to. You've got a battle of promises. You've got to figure out who to trust. And lastly, you have a battle of prayer, which is you've got to figure out who to go to. You have to figure out who to go to, who to run to when you don't know what to do. And I love this portion. This is what Marcy read for us this morning. At the end of this story, after the Rabshakeh has come back and threatened them again, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messenger. So they, t- they took notes on what the Rabshakeh said, and they bring it to Hezekiah. And he takes that letter, and before he does anything else, he goes in and he lays it on the ground before the Lord. He just presents his problem to the Lord, and he prays this amazing prayer. He says, O Lord God of Israel, Enthroned above the cherubim, you are God alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. That includes Assyria. And you have made heaven and earth. So, Lord, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock you, the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and lands, and they have cast other gods into the fire because they were not gods. See what he does here when the Rob Shaka says, hey, nobody else's God has delivered them. Hasn't worked out for anybody else. Hezekiah says, yeah, but there's one big difference between our God and theirs. Our God exists and theirs doesn't. That's the big difference. He says, God, he has blasphemed you. He has compared you to these false gods. Oh, Lord, would you save us, please, by your hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are Lord. This is such a great prayer when you don't know what to do. Lord, save me from this circumstance, not just so I can be happy and healthy, but save us so that everybody can see that you are God. Because this is God's plan, is that all the nations would come to know him. In the end, we don't get a vision of a few people who all look alike and talk alike and think alike. It's everybody trusting in Christ from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, reunited to God through one way, 
Jesus Christ, trusting in him. And so what Hezekiah prays here is such a great thing to pray. Oh, Lord, would you save us so that your name would be glorified, that your name would be famous as somebody who delivers? Oh, Lord, would you save us? And even whatever happens after that, Lord, we ask you to do it so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. That's a prayer that God always answers. Now, he may answer it in his own way. We don't always know how he's going to glorify his name, but that is a prayer that is right in line with what God is always doing. And the problem sometimes when you don't know what to do is you don't know what God's up to. You don't know exactly what angle God's taking because we don't always know what God's doing. But here's what we can pray when we don't know what to do. Glorify your name. Save people through this experience. Bring people to come to know you through what I'm going through. God, would you please let people know that you alone are a Savior. You alone are God. So we wait on God. And when we don't know what to do, we listen to his voice. We listen to his promises. We go to him. We pray our temptations into submission. We pray other voices into submission. We pray until we hear from God. We remind ourselves of our identity, what God has spoken about us. We take those promises in Scripture and we begin to live by them. We memorize them. We write them down. We're waiting for God to fulfill those promises in our lives. Charles Spurgeon summarizes the story so well. He says, many a Rob Shaka's letter we have read of late, O Lord. Behold, we bring it into the sanctuary and spread it before you. God, rebuke unbelief, rebuke the skepticism of those who assault you and your Christ and the gospel of your truth. Now let me tell you how the story ends. Isaiah comes and he gives a word of the Lord to Hezekiah and he gives this long prophecy. And at the end of chapter 19, he says, Thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He will not come into the city, he will not shoot an arrow in here, uh, he will not bring up a shield or cast a siege mound against it. By the way he came, that way he will return. And that's what, I, that's what Hezekiah trusts in. And so that night, the angel of the Lord goes out and strikes down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. Jonah, by the way, had been there like 50 years before this. And they'd repented, but they'd gone back to their old ways. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sharazer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. There's kind of an irony at the end of this story. What the Rabshakeh says is, this is the most powerful guy in the world. If you listen to him, he will be able to bring his promises true in your life. And Hezekiah says, no, we serve the living God. He is the only one who can bring his word to pass. And what happens at the end of Sennacherib's life? In his own temple, worshiping his own God, his life is taken from him. It's almost like God is reminding us, no other God, no other man, no other power can actually deliver on their promises. Only God. Worshiping in his own temple with his own family, he cannot be protected. But the Israelites were protected from the most powerful army in the world because they trusted in the promises of God. I'll close with this quote from Ray Ortland. He's talking about the ministry of Isaiah, but I think it's so perfect for this story. The prophet Isaiah wants to show us more of God and more of ourselves than we've ever seen before in this story. What he wants us to know is what it means to be saved. Do we have the courage to listen? We might as well, our friends disappoint us, our good intentions let us down. Sooner or later, our very bodies will give out. But God has opened a way for us to swim eternally in the ocean of his love. Our part is to look beyond ourselves 
and our circumstances to stake everything on God, who alone saves sinners. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder. Lord, these stories are such an encouragement to us that you have been faithful then and you are faithful now. And Father, we may not be facing an Assyrian army. We may not have things that are quite as eye-opening and as explicit as these threats that they were making are. But Father, we are in situations just like this all the time where we have a choice. Listen to somebody else or listen to you. Hedge our bets with some other promise or stake everything on your promise. Father, I pray this morning that as we come to you, you would remind us that you are the only source of life, of joy, of peace. Father, I pray that um, for the hundred different circumstances that are in this room this morning, you would be faithful in every single one. Father, I pray that our prayer would be glorify yourself in my life. Bring people to know you through my life. Whatever I go through, Lord, I pray it would be for your glory. And so, Father, we thank you for the greatest answer to a promise that there's ever been. That there's no condemnation for us because Jesus paid it all. Father, we thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. respond to what we've heard this morning. God, some of us in this room might be in that very situation. And as we sing, just help us to remind ourselves.